The men stared in shock and fear as they looked into the darkness, the heavy seas whipping wind and biting snow making it difficult to make out the shadow in front of them. Could it be? Could rescue only be just a couple of miles away? As soon as their hearts soared with faith, they sank into their stomachs with the bone-chilling realization that it was not a rescue ship, but the stern section of the ship they were standing on, and it was heading right toward them. Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, my name is Eleanor. Just a quick disclaimer for our younger audience before we dive in. This story may be disturbing to some, so viewer discretion is advised. Okay everyone, let's get into it. Thank you to our listeners for selecting SS Daniel J. Morrell. It's been quite a long time since we last covered a shipwreck on the Great Lakes, and they truly are captivating. Many of the shipwrecks that are quite popular on the Great Lakes are Great Lakes freighters, and they are so interesting because of their long, skinny build and their tragic stories. Many of these ships are prone to breaking back or snapping in half while in heavy seas because of the immense pressure large swells put on their cargo-laden, skinny midsections. Unfortunately, SS Daniel J. Morrell is the prime example of this phenomenon. Without any further ado, let's look at her history and specs. SS Daniel J. Morrell was a Great Lakes freighter built for Cambria Steamship Company, which was the Cambria Iron Company's marine subsidiary that they'd formed earlier that year, being built by West Bay City Shipbuilding Company in West Bay City, Michigan. She was designated Yard Number 00619, and she would be completed on August 22, 1906. She was named for the late Daniel Johnson Morrell, the manager and general superintendent of the Cambria Iron Company, and he was also a Republican U.S. representative from Pennsylvania. Morrell also had sent multiple letters regarding the safety of Johnstown Dam to Benjamin Franklin Ruff, founder of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club that was in charge of watching the Johnstown Dam, and eventually the failure of that dam caused the Great Johnstown Flood on May 31, 1889, killing more than 2,200 people, and it was the largest disaster in U.S. history up to that point. Morrell wasn't alive for that, however, as he died on August 20th, 1885. As for SS Daniel J. Morrell, she would displace 7,239 gross registered tons and 5,419 net registered tons. And of course, this is an American vessel, so her tonnage is in imperial tons, not metric tons. In imperial measurements, she was 603 feet long, had a beam of 58 feet wide, and a depth of 32 feet deep. In metric measurements, that's a length of 184 meters long, a beam of 18 meters wide, and a depth of 9.8 meters deep. As for propulsion, she was equipped with one triple expansion steam engine fed by two Scotch boilers that could produce an average of 1,878 horsepower or 1,400 kilowatts, which turned one screw. With this setup, she definitely wasn't a speed demon with an average service speed of 10 knots, but she was reliable. The ship was painted red on her keel and hull with a white superstructure in the fore and aft sections of the ship, with the middle being strictly for cargo. On her final voyage, she would have 29 crew serving aboard her. 
SS Daniel J. Morrell had the U.S. registry identification number of 203507, the call sign KGBD, and her port of registry was Wilmington, Delaware. She and her sister ship, SS Edward Y. Townsend, were under the management of one of the most experienced vessel management firms on the Great Lakes, the M.A. Hanna Company, and from there she sailed with only one notable incident. On August 13, 1909, SS Daniel J. Morrell collided with another Great Lakes cargo freighter, the SS Henry Phipps, on Whitefish Bay. Both vessels were severely damaged and limped to harbor, with the damage inflicted to SS Henry Phipps costing around $5,000 in 1909, and the damage for the Morrell costing $10,000, which in 2023 would be $338,230 to repair the Morrell given inflation. In 1930, the management torch would be passed for the sisters, and they'd end up in the hands of Bethlehem Transportation Corporation. As for SS Edward Y. Townsend, she too has an incredibly interesting story, so if you'd like us to cover her, let me know in the comments. Unfortunately, we really don't have much else on SS Daniel J. Morrell's 60-year career up until the sinking of the vessel. However, one majorly important thing we do have to note is that all Great Lakes cargo ships built prior to 1948 were built with a major flaw. The steel used to create them had a high sulfur content. This may not seem like a big deal, but the sulfur in the steel made it incredibly brittle in cold temperatures, and in the cold, choppy waters of the Great Lakes, this put many freighters in danger of breaking up. SS Daniel J. Morrell's steel hull was built with steel that contained high percentages of sulfur, and this is part of the reason she would meet the fate we are about to uncover. Before that, she would gain the name Queen of the Lakes, a designation given to the longest ship serving the Great Lakes, and at that time she was indeed the longest. She'd taken this illustrious title from her sister, and would be succeeded by SS William B. Kerr. We've covered two other queens of the lakes, and those would be SS Carl D. Bradley and SS Edmund Fitzgerald. Check out both of their videos in the cards. SS Daniel J. Morrell would receive a refit and was modernized in 1945, with the older Scotch marine boilers being replaced by Babcock and Wilcox boilers, upping her horsepower to about 3,200 or 2,354 kilowatts. Her engine would be replaced in 1956 with a triple-cylinder Skinner Uniflow engine, increasing her speed a couple knots, but nothing huge. However, we do have to note that at higher RPMs, she did have some uncomfortable vibrations. An extra 500 tons would be added to her displacement with this new engine setup. As for the 1966 season of ore running, the Morrell was doing decently well, and her new captain, 47-year-old Arthur I. Crawley, had spent 29 years on Great Lakes freighters, though he'd only received his master's certification a few years prior to 1966. The Morrell would be the first and sadly last ship he'd master. Morrell received a dry dock inspection on the 25th of February in 1966 in Toledo, Ohio, and she'd undergo her yearly inspection in Toledo shortly after this on April 15th. On July 20th, 1966, she'd undergo her mid-season inspection in Buffalo, New York. No concerns or major issues were found during these inspections. 
SS Daniel J. Morrell and SS Edward Y. Townsend were both used to haul ore and other cargo all over the Great Lakes. However, the ships and their crews assumed their work was over for the season that November day in 1966. The lakes would get too icy and nasty to traverse, so usually around November, ships would take their last run of the season, undergo repairs and dry dock over winter, and return to the lakes in the spring. So far, that was the plan for the Townsend and the Morrell. However, the ship slated to carry a load of iron ore from Taconite Harbor, Minnesota to Buffalo, New York, suffered mechanical issues and was now unable to deliver this payload for Bethlehem Steel, the sister ship's operator. So, the sisters were tasked with this final run of the season. This would also ensure a fat bonus check for both crews, so it seemed like a no-brainer to Captain Crawley, and he gladly accepted. Winter storms in November are absolutely notorious, so much so that next week we are covering a major one that sank multiple ships in 1913, and one was on its way that November day. With it, it would bring snow and high winds that would stir up the lakes. SS Daniel J. Morrell left Buffalo on November 26, 1966 at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and SS Edward Y. Townsend left at 3 a.m., also empty, to retrieve the cargo from Taconite Harbor, and then they'd finish their round trip after successfully picking up the iron ore they needed. However, you and I both know that's not how this trip is going to go. If you're enjoying this video, leave me a like, subscribe to the channel for more content, and let me know down in the comments section below. Okay, back to the story. SS Daniel J. Morrell had successfully crossed Lake Erie despite the horrific weather conditions. She'd refuel in Windsor, and in less than 24 hours after this, the ship would be gone. She'd pass up the Detroit River, and at around 9 a.m. on November 28, 1966, she'd radio into Bethlehem Steel for the last daily position report she'd ever make. The weather would continue to steadily worsen into a vicious November storm. Lake Huron was rippled with 70 mile per hour or 113 kilometer per hour winds and waves up to 35 feet or 10.67 meters tall as the two sister ships made their way toward Taconite Harbor. Later that day, on November 28, 1966, the weather was too much for SS Edward Y. Townsend, and she'd seek shelter in the relative safety of the St. Clair River, but the morale would move forward as planned. She rounded the thumb and headed north of Point of Bark, Michigan, with the lake waters only getting rougher early in the morning on November 29, 1966. Morrell was heading for the safety of Thunder Bay, but she'd never make it. Dennis Hale, a 26-year-old man from Ashtabula, Ohio, was serving as a watchman on the Morrell that fateful voyage, and he was asleep in his bunk after his watch when early in the morning on November 29, 1966, he awoke to a pair of two loud banging sounds. At first, he assumed the first noise he'd heard to be from the anchor banging on the side of the ship, since he'd heard that as he was going to sleep. However, when he heard the second bang and books started to fall from his bookshelf, he somehow knew in the pit of his stomach that the ship was doomed. Around 2 a.m., the ship was already in her death throes, which forced the crew up on deck to save themselves. Dressed only in his boxers and a peacoat, Hale soon found himself in 34 degree Fahrenheit or 1 degree Celsius water, with many of his fellow crew members having already jumped to their deaths into the freezing water. At 2.15 a.m., SS Daniel J. Morrell split in the middle, the stern and bow separating. The remaining crew on the bow section loaded themselves into a raft, and as they waited for the bow section to sink, 
There were shouts that they'd spotted a ship off the port bow. On the bow section, as their fate lay clearly out in front of them, watchman Norm Bragg, who'd survived the 1953 wreck of SS Henry Steinbrenner on Lake Superior, turned to his fellow crew somberly. He quickly helped them understand their plight, gave them some advice, and said, quote, It's been good to know you, signifying the end for them. He would not survive. Hale and three of his fellow crewmen, John Clearly, Charles Fossbender, and Arch Stojic, managed to make their way into a 15-man pontoon lifeboat. The ship that loomed in the storm was not actually another ship. It was the stern section of the Morel, which was still under power and continued to sail, and it was heading straight toward the doomed bow section. It would eventually continue under the engine's power right past the bow section as it sank beneath the waves. According to the words of writer William Radigan, the stern section would disappear into the night, quote, like a great wounded beast with its head shot off. No distress signal had been sent from SS Daniel J. Morrell. This was due to the fact that when the ship had broken in half, an electrical cable was severed and therefore no messages could be sent out. The ship and her crew of 29 were on their own in the darkness, and no one was coming to save them. It wouldn't be until SS Edward Y. Townsend arrived in Salt St. Marie 12 hours later that anyone would realize the ship was missing. Meanwhile, a battle for survival had already started. If you're on an audio-only format like Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, make sure to subscribe for more episodes and leave us a 5-star review, since it helps us reach more listeners like you. Check out our community tab on YouTube to keep up with us, and we are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Okay, back to the story. Dennis Hale would face a harrowing evening of trauma. 38 hours in the cold, stormy, and blustery waves of Lake Huron. Sometime during these 38 hours, he and his three crewmates had made it to the relative safety of their lifeboat. However, due to exposure and the fact none of them were dressed well enough to survive in the elements, all of them except Hale would perish. Hale later stated in interviews that he'd prayed for death as the punishing, grueling elements tortured him throughout the night. He said it took years to regain the feeling in his hands and feet from the numbing, bone-chilling sea spray he faced. The poor man was in and out of hallucinations all night from the cold, even hallucinating that his fellow crew members were still alive and were going to make it out with him. He carried the burden of the psychological scarring up until his death on September 2nd, 2015, where he'd lose his battle to cancer. Rest in peace, Dennis Hale. On the afternoon of November 30th, 1966, two United States Coast Guard helicopters began their search for SS Daniel J. Morrell and any survivors. They spotted the lifeboat that Hale was in near Huron City, bobbing in the waves. Hale was rescued and rushed to Harbor Beach Hospital, where he was read his last rites by a priest. For younger listeners, non-religious listeners, and anyone who just doesn't know, last rites are an elongated prayer speaking in the person of the one who is dying, asking forgiveness of sin, the mercy of God, and the intercession of the saints. They may be administered to those awaiting execution, the mortally injured, or the terminally ill, and so they figured Dennis Hale was on his way out. Thankfully, his condition would stabilize, and he'd share his story numerous times over the next five decades, including in his own book called Soul Survivor, Dennis Hale's Own Story. I highly recommend getting this book if you want all of the details of the story told from a survivor himself, and to support Dennis Hale and his family. I'll leave a link for it in the description of this episode for anyone who would like to read it. 
This episode couldn't be possible without our lovely patrons. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the channel and future episodes, go to patreon.com slash shipwrecksunday to join. Shortly after the sinking of the Morel, a huge crack was discovered in the hull of Edward Y. Townsend, which would deem her unseaworthy, and she was destined for the scrapyard. She was going to be towed to a scrapyard in Spain shortly after that, and she faced an odd fate instead. If you would like us to cover it, I would absolutely love to. Let me know in the comments. 26 of the 28 crew members who perished were recovered in the following days after the sinking, and bodies were being found well into May of 1967. The two men whose bodies were never recovered would be considered legally dead in May of 1967. Rest in peace to the entire crew of SS Daniel J. Morrell. May they rest easy, and I hope their loved ones have found peace. In the aftermath of the sinking, the Coast Guard investigation of the sinking of SS Daniel J. Morrell concluded that she broke in half due to the incredibly brittle steel she was made of, which was a problem for many ships built before 1948. She was also one of two ships that were out during the storm, which really brings into question whether or not she should have been out at this time. The other ship was stuck in the storm because coming about or turning the bow into the direction of the wind was seen as a huge risk for capsizing. Two other lessons were learned the hard way. Number one, the leading killer of sailors is hypothermia. And number two, that lifeboats on davits were largely useless in such a turbulent sea and couldn't be safely launched. Lifeboat design has changed drastically since 1966, luckily, and I'm sure we can thank SS Daniel J. Morrell for that, even if only partially. As for SS Daniel J. Morrell, the survey of the wreck found the shipwreck in 220 feet or 67 meters of water for the stern section, and 130 feet or 40 meters for the bow with the two sections 5 miles or 8 kilometers apart from one another. The wreck was discovered by shipwreck hunters in 1979, with both sections sitting upright on the lake floor. Clocks on both halves of the ship confirm that the stern section sank a full three hours after the bow, which is simply unheard of. For divers of the wreck, the bow section boasts the mast, an intact cabin, mushroom anchors, and the long swim to where the ship broke in half. At the stern, divers can see just about everything you can think of. Lifeboats on the sides still in their davits, dishes in the galley, a life ring down the stairs, and a totally accessible engine room with gauges and machinery. The double wheel and smokestack are still on deck as well. Interestingly enough, there is a song about this ship. It's Goin' Down by Dan Hall, an Australian rock singer, songwriter, guitarist, and pianist that has been in two rock bands, Taxi Ride and Airway Lanes. As for the legacy of this ship, the story of SS Daniel J. Morrell is one of the more popular stories on the Great Lakes, alongside SS Edmund Fitzgerald, SS Henry Steinbrenner, and SS Carl D. Bradley. However, this story is uniquely tragic in how she sank and how her sinking scarred the sole survivor for life. Rest in peace to all of the victims and the only survivor of this tragedy, and I hope they have found solace. Thank you to everyone for suggesting SS Daniel J. Morrell. If you liked that story and wanted to hear something similar, check out our episode on the Rouse Simmons, the Christmas tree ship that sank in Lake Michigan in 1912. Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. Stay tuned next week for the story of the Great Lakes Storm of 1913, an enormous November storm that sank 19 vessels and stranded 19 others. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.